Thank you to all of you who um, are joining us live. Um, my favorite part is actually going to be the Q&A session. So please bring on the questions. It's like dessert for me because it really helps me understand where we're not doing the best job we can on the cybersecurity side because your question means there's still too much complexity. You also have a great partner in Cisco, a great thought leader. And so for some of the advice that I'm going to be sharing with you today, you've got a great partner to use as a sounding board. So I highly encourage you take advantage of that. I do have a couple of pictures here from uh, the family scrapbook and I bring up my time at the White House because it was an incredible honor uh, to serve uh, the executive office of the president, work for President George W. Bush, uh, which I did from 2006 to 2008. And I came to the White House having spent a career in financial services. So I worked for the financial services industry for 16 years. And I was always on the cutting edge of transformation and innovation projects. And when you're on the cutting edge of those, you're on the cutting edge of something else, which is fraud and cybercrime. So I always had responsibility for both. And I went into the White House with sort of the conventional wisdom that many cybersecurity professionals have, which is if I could just train our customers, and if I could just train my business partners to know a little bit more about what I know, then my job's gonna be a little bit better and easier. They're gonna be a little bit more safe and like things will get better. It's just, you know, let's do end user awareness, uh, awareness and education. And when I got to the White House and realized that my morning briefings were changing based on where the president, the vice president, the 3000 staff that work at the executive office, of the president, where they were traveling, where they were meeting with people, what different type of global um, political socioeconomic events were happening, that the threats were changing for me that I had to be thinking about. And I thought, I've got to change my way of thinking. I have to reimagine how I approach cybersecurity, because if I don't, I'm doomed to fail. <laughs> I can't, I, I'm barely going to keep up with things. And that's when I really realized that I had it all wrong and that the cybersecurity industry had it wrong. And if you think about this, we so focus on the technology and then we kind of like bolt on the cybersecurity and then we say, okay, now we're going to teach everybody, don't open up emails and click on links and open attachments. I don't know about you, I wouldn't have been very popular with President George W. Bush if I said, you know, I just feel like there's a ticking time bomb in my email today, sir, so I'm just not going to do emails today. That wouldn't have gone over well because a big part of my job was to monitor emails. For many users, it's a big part of their job too. So that's where I changed my philosophy into always designing for the human first and making sure the technology supported the human. And I'm gonna share with you some different ways that you can think about that. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does McDonald's, specifically a Happy Meal, um, have to do with the White House? And this is yet another example of how to think about designing for the human. Um, and there's actually a lot, uh, besides the fact that there's a White House right next to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, um, what was interesting was is that a staff member didn't report a missing smartphone right away. And so when we asked a few people why, they said they had read the policy we gave them and it only talked about penalties and not how our office could be helpful to them in locating the missing smartphone. 
Um, add to that, candidly, our briefings were long and, um, well, let's just say boring. Let's just call it what it was, boring. And so we got permission to actually pilot. There's 13 components that make up the executive office of the president. We got permission to pilot a short and more welcoming policy. We also got a chance to reimagine our briefing approach, and this is where the Happy Meal comes in. So we tested it with a small group in one of the 13 components. The reinvented briefing was reduced down to five minutes long, and it came with something we nicknamed a smartphone Happy Meal. In this case, the fast food was the phone itself with some interesting extras. We would actually place it into like a one gallon see-through Ziploc bag and we would surround the phone with White House M&M candies, jelly, bean, jelly beans, all different types of fun White House things. We would then hand over this Happy Meal, smartphone Happy Meal, and show them there was one business card in there with our 24 by 7 number on it. In that briefing, we would tell them if they traveled internationally for work or for fun to give us a call so we could secure their smartphone. If they ever misplaced their phone, we explained that they could call our number and chances are we could geolocate the phone. And if we could retrieve it, great. And if we couldn't, we would issue a kill command, not, not of the person, of, of the device. And we would reissue them another smartphone. So prior to the pilot, users waited almost a full business day before they called my office to say, I can't find my smartphone. During our pilot, after receiving our short briefing, the pilot participants began reporting missing phones in less than an hour. We saw another unexpected benefit, and that is that the staff in the pilot began bragging to people who were not in the pilot about their happy meal experience to others. And so now people around the complex were calling my office begging for a cybersecurity briefing. I don't know about you, but when is the last time you begged for a briefing? And I'm certainly convinced that most people are happiest when they have chocolate or jelly beans that they can munch on. So the three R's I want you to be considering as I talk about sort of the future um, of cybercrime and some design ideas is it really does boil down to resiliency, recoverability, and reliability. I do want to make a pitch for all of you um, around resiliency that we're not just talking about systems, we're also talking about you. And I, I really want to stress that during this global pandemic, that I know that most of you, there's a lot of stressors on you. There's stressors personally, stressors professionally. So don't forget, as you're thinking about technology transformation, McKinsey Consulting just came out with they believe that during this pandemic, that technology transformation roadmaps were accelerated by seven years. That pressure is squarely on your shoulders. So don't forget, resiliency is not just about the mission, the operations, and the systems. Take some time out for you. And I know that's easier said than done, um, but resiliency begins with you. Next slide. Because let's talk about um, what I'm seeing as far as how cyber criminals are actually tricking their victims. And I'm not going to share with you stuff that you can read in the news for yourself because I saw where people are um, participating from. This is a very smart group. Um, you guys read the newspapers 
well-read watching the news. So I want to talk to you about some things that maybe you haven't seen in the headlines. And the first one is an observation about clickbait ads. Um, although they're incredibly appealing, you know, we, we all want to see what uh, some celebrity wore to an event gala or what some politician did that, you know, nobody wants you to know about and that, you know, the crazy thing somebody said that you won't believe. But those clickbait ads themselves don't always have nefarious intent, but the driver behind them, either the purchaser of the third party marketing data or the group that actually stands it up to make it look like uh, it's an ad for sort of a news magazine or a celebrity magazine, but actually the go between could be nefarious cyber operatives. As part of this clickbait, oftentimes they can collect things such as what website did you come from? device operating system, device ID, usernames. Usernames can be used to reverse engineer back into where does the person work. And so these clickbait ads are providing demographic data that can then in turn be used for social engineering campaigns, fraud campaigns, and sort of guessing uh, your way into a company's uh, network. Fake personas, fake companies, fake ads. I want you to have a playbook for this. And I want the playbook to be that somebody may set up a fake persona pretending to work for your company, posting want ads, uh, filing unemployment insurance claims uh, you know, against the company, impersonating some of your chief executives or your organization. And how do you think about doing that? Well, we have alerts, for example, for ourselves as a company that says anybody, anytime somebody says they work for the company, we do a quick matchup against the actual employees within the company. We're small enough that I know everybody's name. I'll give you a quick example of something that happened to us a couple years back on LinkedIn. Somebody registered themselves as an, a security analyst working at Fortalist Solutions. The alert came in. It didn't match the names of our employees. I saw the name and I thought, you know, I know we're on board with a lot of people right now, but I yeah, don't recognize back. this name. So I then, took a look at the LinkedIn profile and I could tell by looking at the picture that the picture had been generated, that it had been generated by deep fake technology that takes hundreds of thousands of pictures and creates made, made up faces. And one way for a telltale sign to know that you're looking at deep fake photograph of somebody or an auto generated, this person doesn't really exist, especially for people with long hair, it's hard for that software right now to really generate a, a human ear that looks normal. They have a hard time rendering a mouth and teeth and anything dangling like hair or jewelry is very hard um, for deep fake technology to render um, appropriately. I did a reverse image lookup on the photograph and saw that other new social media accounts also had that photograph. I reached out, so this all happened within 30 minutes of this person registering, getting this alert, looking this up. And within that time frame, tens of people had already accepted invites from this fake security analyst. I reached out to each one individually and said, this person does not work for us. I reported the account to LinkedIn. I then uh, went out to one of my alternate identities, that's not me, that we use for investigations reached out to the individual and said, we know you're a fake, you know, I know you're a fake and I'm gonna report you to the company and to LinkedIn. 
It took about four hours from beginning to end. And by that time frame, dozens and dozens of people had accepted invites from this fake analyst. So I want you to have a playbook that thinks about sort of the, the clickbait, the fake personas, fake companies, and fake ads. And then ask yourself, what would we do in the event that there are fake personas impersonating our executives or employees? How would we know and what would we do about it? Chatbots. Um, I'm going to talk about um, chatbots and how they play uh, a role here in a moment. Uh, and the same thing with deep fakes and AI. Next slide. This is a case uh, I actually had predicted uh, several years ago that deep fakes would actually be used to conduct fraudulent transactions. And uh, sadly, that prediction actually came true. Uh, I was over with the European Council of Banks before the pandemic, uh, giving them a talk. They asked me to come present to them uh, a black swan uh, event that was caused by cybersecurity uh, failures and a run on the global banks. And so I've made a presentation to them on that. That's like a whole nother talk for another time. Uh, but while I was there, they asked me to consult with them on a case that had just happened. This is an international company with international lines of business. Uh, they uh, basically needed to do a wire transfer to a vendor. CEO sends typical CEO message to CFO. CFO receives it and waits for the multi-factor authentication. In their case, the multi-factor authentication is CEO picks up the phone, makes a phone call, and gives a voice authorization. CFO receives that voice authorization, makes wire transfer, talks to CEO later in the day. CEO says to CEO, uh, the wire transfer went through. I, I, I'm a little puzzled. Why was it such an emergency? CEO says it wasn't me. CFO says it was definitely your voice. And you made reference to a joke in the email that you also referenced on the voice authorization. How did they do it? Well, let me tell you first how I want you to design around how the fraudsters did it. So as it relates to money movement or any major like intellectual property, I highly recommend you set up a domain name that is not your public facing domain name. You then set up a set of credentials that you don't use on LinkedIn, you don't use on social media, you don't even use with regular emails with other people. That set of credentials, that domain name, and an email template you talk with your bankers about. You then can decide what your other multi-factor authentication is, but between the requester and the authorizer, also make sure there is some type of code name. It can be Superman, and Wonder Woman, Batman, Robin, whatever you want it to be, but have it something that's not easily guessed. That on top of that standalone domain name, standalone credentials only used for money movement or only used for intellectual property, that you have that code sent back and forth. Once all those things are present, that is an authorization to proceed. Well, and let me tell you how the fraudsters did it. The fraudsters were able to stand up a domain name that looked like the company's domain name. So they did domain squatting and social engineering. They had done a lot of research on this company to have a legitimate sounding email and the domain name looked correct, but it was a number instead of a letter. So an O and a zero instead of an O. The next thing they did is many CEOs have given presentations, have talked to the news media, have recordings of them that are available on the internet. 
They downloaded voice recordings of the CEO to create a deep fake audio and they made sure the deep fake audio matched the email that they sent for the wire transfer. So the voicemail talked about the same things in the email using deep fake audio. It sounded just like the CEO. The last time I checked in with them, there was over 200,000 British sterling still not accounted for. Next slide. I want to talk to you about AI chatbots because many of you are probably implementing uh, customer service chatbots and you should. I had a conversation with a global insurance company and he knew that at the White House and at banking, I had had both the phone channel, internet channel, mobile banking. So he's really excited to talk to me about this pilot that they were doing. And in this small pilot, the customer service chatbots were outperforming the most seasoned customer service agents. The AI engineers did not really understand global insurance. They didn't even work for the company. So they had outsourced the development effort. I asked the question about how do the chatbots honor user access controls, authorizations, and how do you, because they're contextually aware, self-learning, how do you make sure they're always honoring the fact that certain transactions require a supervisor, sort of a maker checker? You can't have people in a call center that have super admin access. And there was kind of blank stares. Thankfully, this was a pilot. So they looked into it and sure enough, because the engineers didn't understand global insurance and really understand the business functions, they went with what the company gave them, which was quick average handle time, customer service, we want high scores, and we, as much as possible, do not want them to drop out of the chatbot to something more expensive, which would be a human doing chat, brick and mortar, phone center. They did not know they needed to honor user access controls. So what happened was the chatbots operating off of those key performance indicators started elevating each other's privileges, and they all ended up being super users, storing all customer data in the clear and not encrypted. It was a pilot, they found it, they did an incident response. None of the customer data had actually been compromised. Thank goodness. So do I tell you this to tell you don't have chatbots? No. What I want you to be thinking about, we had a saying at the White House and it is an enduring strategy regardless of what cyber criminals are doing and regardless of the technology that you have to plug and play into your organization. And that is, if you wanna save it, you have to segment it. So be thinking about those opportunities. How do you do micro segmentation? I gave you a very simplistic example, right? With that fraud where I said, stand up a domain name that's not your public facing domain name, a set of credentials you don't use anywhere else. That's kind of like a low budget entry level way of thinking of micro segmentation. Think about it with your data. Think about it down at the transaction level. Think about it machine to machine, look for that opportunity to do that micro segmentation. Really quick, before we go into the Q&A, um, I wanna talk to you about a victim story because extortionware coupled with ransomware is not always as it seems. We're finding that in certain cases, we've now seen three, I'm gonna to talk to you about one of the cases. We had a victim call us say they didn't wanna pay ransom. Not everything was locked up, but they got a ransom note and a link to go to the dark web to see their data. 
they didn't want to pay the ransom. So we had one team looking to see if there was any incidents of compromise while the other team went to the dark web. We go to the dark web. It's not the company's data. Not only is it not their data, it's, it's not anybody that's even remotely related to the company. What's going on here? You have affiliates getting recruited very quickly into these ransomware syndicates and they aren't technically as astute as the evil masterminds that spin up the syndicates. It's kind of like the old school, like somebody put the file folder for an account into the wrong file folder. So now it's hard to find. And so we've actually seen this happen three times now in this particular instance. It wasn't their data wasn't related to them. Got permission from the client to call the victim and say, hey, we see your data out here. Let us know if you need anything called law enforcement, told them what was going on, went to the client and said, they probably have your data. They've just misplaced it. Um, why don't you restore from backup? And let's hold our breath, see if they release your data because you didn't pay. And more than 45 days have passed and they have not released their data. And the other two instances where the data was not their data, they went ahead and restored, held their breaths, and the two syndicates have since um, you know, gone to the beach um, and are probably recalibrating. All right, next slide. And then this, this is kind of the last content I want to go over before we get into Q and a, um, you know, I always want to make sure I leave you with something that you can use. You know, I talked to you about the happy meal. I talked to you about these cybercrime scenarios for 2022 and how to design for them. And now I want to talk to you about another enduring design principle, which is having kill switches and shields up moments. And no cybersecurity talk would be complete without talking Barbie. So talking Barbie, when she first came out, from Mattel, she was full of all different types of computer viruses. Mattel has since fixed those. She also would talk to unsafe Wi-Fi networks. So here's an example of a kill switch. You find out that there's some type of an issue going on. Talking Barbie, in order to work, your child would talk to the Barbie, it would go up to the cloud, it would be interpreted, and then Barbie would talk back. You just disconnect her from the cloud. That's your kill switch moment. The shields up moment is she's got computer viruses. What? She's not talking to our network until those are fixed. Again, these issues have since been fixed. So that's an example where you can talk to your technology provider, whether it's your internal team or somebody on the outside and say, I want to give you my, my executive's worst nightmare. I want to talk through it and I want to find, is there an opportunity for us to create a kill switch? And then in that playbook that you have, Practice and get your executives bought in on who decides when to flip the kill switch. What does that look like? And what limited functionality do you have left? In Barbie's case, you could still play with her. She's just not going to answer you unless you speak for her in an old school way. You know, hey, Barbie, how are you? And then you do, I'm fine. It's great to be here. Right. And then the shields up moment. Same thing. Where were you going to? So if you think about this in practice, a kill switch moment, you hear that you have some type of an incident, maybe you end up cutting off a particular application from the internet until you can examine it. Then you hear there's a lower level incident with that, so you decide that that application is no longer going to talk to your internal network. That's an example of those kill switch and shields up moments. Well, Teresa, that was a fascinating presentation. I, I'm not even sure where to start, so I'm, I'm looking to see. I don't see any Q&A. Um, popping up, but I had a couple questions that I wanted to ask. Um, 
You know, what was something that you learned while you were at the White House that you keep with you to this day and still continue to practice? Yeah, I always start with the user stories. You know, I would walk around and I would ask people, hey, how's our technology working for you? You know, what do you like? And then, hey, when does when do things get in the way of you getting the job done? And oh, how do you work around that? Because that's typically that workaround. That's typically where I lost line of sight. And that's where the security vulnerabilities are lurking is where you lose line of sight. You know, the other thing I would say, I had a slide um, a little while ago um, is decoys. So one of the things, another enduring design principle besides designing for the human and knowing the user stories and micro segmentation is decoys. Um, we would create decoys and, um, you know, make it look like real people real applications, potentially real data, a real part of the organization, and make those not too obvious, but slightly vulnerable. And then we would learn and observe from the cyber criminal elements that would target those. And we would use that to create uh, targeting profiles of what might be coming after us and how to look for it. We would also use it to create, okay, so if that was a real person, oh my goodness, like what should we do to make sure that the real person's profile wouldn't get attacked? And if it was attacked, how do we make sure it's not successful? So that that's another enduring design. Um, and it doesn't matter what cyber criminals are doing, and it doesn't matter what technology you're integrating and you know, sunsetting and integrating, having those decoys can uh, really teach you a lot. That's excellent. Just looking to see if we've got any raised hands. So another um, another thought um, I wanted to talk about was, you know, it, it seems like we can't tech our way out of this issue. I mean, it, it feels like there has to be some kind of human interaction. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I talked a little bit about making sure you understand your user stories. But I, I also do want to impress that like th there's a bigger challenge here. Uh, I get frustrated that here we are decades later and when somebody, when a, a business is a victim, we say, okay, so what did they not do? What did they not take seriously? They should have spent more. They should have worked harder. And I'm sorry, you're a victim of a crime because you're a successful organization and somebody decided your information or money was a value to them. I mean, it's like one of the few areas of crime that we still like shame the victim and say, you must have done something wrong. Um, and so we've got a lot more work to do. And, and what I would say is besides knowing those human stories and implementing things such as multi-factor authentication, which I know is hard, and clunky, but the technologies are getting better um, and easier and more elegant to use. You know, think about micro segmentation. I know that I know you can't just say that and it happens tomorrow. But as you're on that journey doing that, some other things to be thinking about are: Are you connected to an FBI InfraGuard group, or for people who have international equities, something like GHCQ, uh, where they're sharing in real time, anonymizing the victims story and who the victim is, but sharing in real time, hey, look for these files. Hey, look for the, these points of intrusion. Hey, if you're using this remote access protocol, guess what? We have a bunch of victims right now who their cyber incident traces back to this protocol. Set your settings to this. So if you don't already have those relationships, 
that can be a great way to learn from those experiences and take that back. And most of these organizations, once you pass the background check, there's no fee. It's it's a you know a greater good information sharing type of um, opportunity. Then I would also say our elected officials have to do more. Uh, we need international cooperation. We need our elected officials to be fighting on behalf of businesses instead of pushing down more onerous, expensive regulation to be in compliance with. Um, Cybercrime has to be dealt with. Like we need to have an international accord that says an attack against a private sector company is an attack against all of us. I mean, it will not stand and there will be legal uh, ramifications uh, if you are harboring cyber criminal syndicates in your country, uh, you will be held accountable to that. We expect you to cooperate with law enforcement. So that type of international court, we've leveraged it on other types of crimes, such as human trafficking, such as child pornography, and we've made greater progress of being able to seek justice when there are victims. We need to do the same with cybercrime and really hammer out, you know, there's there's a difference of opinion right now. Depending on what uh, nation you are, some nations don't see it as a cybercrime if they steal your intellectual property. <laughs> they think that's fair game. So we need to have a conversation around what constitutes a cybercrime. And then internationally as a community, we need to be able to, to lock arms and say, this will not stand. Um, so I think those things coming together are really important. And I would stress to everybody listening, to make sure that your company, um, if you've got any type of a political affairs um, type of office, that they are stressing that to your elected officials. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So I think we have time for one last question, and this one comes from Kathy. Um, with the majority of our workforce at home, what are some tips we can share to help them better identify fraud outside of how to identify spammy emails? Oh, wow, what a great question. Um, obviously, do everything you can on the email side, you know, giving them the banner that says this is an external email. So if they think they're hearing from the CEO, it's like, wait, the CEO wouldn't be on the outside. You know, so things like that can be really helpful. Gamification, make it simple, fun and have a contest. Whoever reports the most spam in the company wins a something, um, you know, so that awareness of, oh, maybe I'll win a pizza or you know, a hoodie or whatever it is. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is look at your remote access protocols. Um, make sure that they're the latest and greatest, that you've upgraded the software and hardware, uh, that you're logging and monitoring what's happening and looking for behavioral-based anomalies that don't seem to make sense. Uh, that could prevent traffic that looks trusted from reaching out to your employees or trying to behave as your employees. So those can be some strategies. Um, end user education and awareness, even though I you know, kind of poo-pooed it a little bit at the beginning because I want us designing for the human. Once you've designed those human stories, one thing that I've seen be very effective is if you do end user education awareness about how to prevent fraud in their personal life, you know, how not to be a victim of identity theft, that yeah. will actually carry into the workforce and your employee. I've talked to employees where their employers do that and they have such a loyalty factor with their employer because they're like, they cared enough about me 
to make sure that myself and I know how to like track my elderly parents and my kids and make sure none of us fall prey. And that will play into the workplace. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, thank you so much. This has been just fascinating. And um, I'm hoping that you'll be able to stay on with us. We've got a few more uh, topics to cover. Now I'd like to introduce Kevin Switzer, who's the Cisco security specialist, and he's got a few comments to share as well. Okay, excellent. So just going to take up a few minutes here to give you an idea of what is latest and greatest uh, talk at Cisco on the factor of security. And I've worked with Cisco for about 14 years now. And uh, when I started, uh, security was not much of um, a focus uh, for Cisco's. At that time, we had firewalls to fix the ASAs and then introduce a VPN solution. That was the, about the, the end of the security story. Uh, but Cisco really wanted to uh, invest and jump on board and go all in uh, with, with uh, security. So just a real quick timeline of, of how uh, Cisco moved into where they are today. So back in uh, 2007, this was Cisco's first large investment uh, when they acquired a company called Ironport, uh, who were kind of uh, top of the industry for email and web uh, security. And then um, I would say the next big investment they made was in 2012 when they moved into the unified threat management uh, type of solutions, and that was with the purchase of Cisco Meraki. And that was for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, they had a good customer base and they wanted that share of the market, especially for the SMB and into some of the large customers that Cisco typically at that time didn't uh, have a good strategy with. So for that reason, then also because Meraki really did have such a great product that was cloud-based, and Cisco said, hey, you know what, that's the way we want to go. Not only are we going to take their market share, but also let's take that Cisco Meraki easy button and the cloud magic so we can introduce it into a lot of our other solutions. Uh, the next big and worthy uh, acquisition was when they purchased uh, Sourcefire, and it's because they were number one in both the uh, malware protection as well as intrusion prevention systems. 2016, they purchased CloudBock as well as OpenDNS. Uh, they purchased CallLock because it was a very good CASB solution, and they wanted to transition those features um, into a product set that would actually work for uh, pretty much any customer size out there, any type of customer. So they rebranded OpenDNS into Cisco Umbrella, which is primarily DNS security, and then also Cisco has integrated a lot of these CASB-type features um, into that solution set as well. Uh, next, Duo, uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, was purchased in 2018. And also, Cisco's been home-growing uh, solutions as well, as mentioned by Mark, uh, Cisco ICE. Uh, that was a homegrown uh, solution for deep access management. And then also, uh, SecureX, uh, which is a product I'm going to talk more about here in just a couple of moments. And I can't mention Cisco security without mentioning some type of buzzword across the security industry. Um, secure Access Services Edge, SASE, it seems like you can't turn around for five minutes in the security industry without mentioning this. And I just want to mention, yes, Cisco does have a very good um, architecture, solution, and uh, design plan around uh, SASE. So from the connection and SD-WAN portion uh, for SASE, uh, you have your option. If you're already using Meraki, uh, those features are already built into Meraki, and there's even some advanced features in which you can purchase additional licensing uh, to turn on. If you're using either a Cisco ISR router or a third-party router, uh, Viptela is a, is a deep software-based uh, SD-WAN feature also available. For the control, control piece, 
or also the security piece. Um, we typically focus on cloud security. So under umbrella, the solution umbrella, we have things like secure web gateway. We have firewall capability actually in the cloud. Of course, DNS security in the CASB, uh, mostly related to your uh, application uh, filtering and security type of features. And of course, uh, for our uh, multi-factor authentication, as we refer to it as uh, a zero trust, Teresa referred to it as no trust. And if you were to integrate Duo with the highest level features along with ICE, I would say we are hopefully pretty close to what Teresa would consider a no trust solution. That is pretty much our, our goal with that. And want to want to mention to you uh, a newer solution. It's a, I've been out about a year, just over a year, which is Cisco uh, SecureX. And what this is, this is a cloud-based security orchestration tool, and it's really designed to transform your current uh, security infra uh, security infrastructure into an integrated ecosystem. Um, also, it allows you to build capabilities across the security stack. Uh, notice in the right-hand side here, we mentioned third-party. Uh, Cisco, we understand you are using security solutions by other vendors. So this is an open API platform, uh, many of which already have uh, pre-programmed APIs. Of course, all of Cisco's products already have programmed APIs, but I want to say we're around 350 pre-programmed APIs for third-party systems. So this is really meant to be uh, across the board full security, and some of the benefits uh, this solution is going to provide to you. A, it is included with every Cisco security product. So if you happen already to be using Umbrella or one of our firewalls, um, you already have uh, access uh, to this. If you don't know that, haven't used it yet, just uh, reach out and we'll help you get that, uh, that set up. So there is no extra licensing for this. And the goal is that within about 15 minutes, uh, depending on the solutions you're integrating and how many, um, you're actually going to be able to see telemetry data coming in, threat information coming in, and uh, actually be useful in that time. And also bear in mind, um, because these are pre-programmed APIs for the most part, you don't have to pay for professional services uh, to integrate this with your other systems. And we've had the feedback, customers say that they can visualize threats in about half the time before they were using SecureX. Large companies saying they save hundreds of man hours a year uh, by, able, by being able to automate these things and have a much quicker time uh, to see threats coming into the environment and also up to 85% reduction in the time to respond to an attack and remediate it. And just real quick, <clears throat> I don't have to go into too much detail here, but I want, to, want you to know what SecureX is and what it is not. So first of all, SecureX is not a SIM solution. We're not looking to overtake uh, that part of the market and that part of, uh, of the technology. So yes, SOAR, Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response. So like I said, API-based, really trying to keep this as a simplified uh, policy management system and as much automation as possible. Also under XDR, Extended Detection and Response, uh, make your, your view to attacks uh, faster and also allow you to respond much more efficiently. 